Thank you um, very much indeed. I know you've, you've written before about medicine um, almost positioning itself in a way to deliver technical fixes to what are existential problems of the world and society. Is that in a way um, responsible in that if that's how we're actually positioning ourselves, inevitably what we're communicating is going to be informed by that and impossible to meet? Absolutely. I mean, this, the, the, the mandate of protecting, um, uh, you know, uh, the mandate that was praised earlier on about stopping premature mortality. Yes, some of that is in the gift of doctors. Much more, as Claire Short pointed out, is in, is in a more uh, egalitarian society. That would be much more effective at preventing uh, premature mortality. So, you know, and, and I am absolutely certain that every GP in this room will have prescribed antidepressants when somebody needed a new flat. Deny it if you dare. Um, uh, 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 and this whole um, epidemic of depression, again, I suspect my experience is not that much different from other people, that about 10% of the people we label have a really unpleasant disease that colours the whole world grey. The rest of the people are just being ground down by the most... By, by interpersonal violence, by structural violence in society, by lack of hope, by lack of opportunity... Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an appropriate reaction to a difficult situation. So it's almost as if um, Prozac has become the new opium of the masses. Thoughts on that from the panel? Ray? It depends very much, it doesn't make sense perspective, and I absolutely recognise what you're saying, Iona, in terms of general practice. Of course, all my work was in hospital medicine, and I was fortunate enough that most of my patients had catastrophic diseases so to speak. So, it, 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 and in that sense, it, it, it was clearly that the illness was very much to the forefront. I, what we, we know, we, I wasn't in the position of prescribing antidepressants as an alternative to proper accommodation. Of course, I do accept very much uh, that the situation that led up to them having the kinds of diseases, cardiorespiratory problems and so on, uh, were clearly social. But I think it's very important not to underestimate the specific contribution of medicine if, I referred to these data yesterday, but if we look at the last 20 or 30 years, there has been an increasing uh, life expectancy despite a Tory government, despite a neoliberal uh, Labour government, despite all sorts of things being somewhat dismantled. And that has been, a lot of it can be directly ascribed to medical interventions in the very broadest sense. That is to say, uh, either treatments or public health interventions of, of, of the kind that obviously Gabriel will be in a much better position. So, but, yeah. but health inequalities have widened over of that course. period. And despite what you said, I think the evidence that healthy life expectancy is improving is very tenuous. So we're making people live longer um, uh, and, and actually it sometimes seems to me to end up looking like torturing the elderly just to make the figures look a bit better. Um, so that we're, we're making people live longer but they're not there, but the healthy life expectancy is, is remarkably stubborn. So, just, I just, so, so it sounds uh, as though Iona's contesting the outcome, and Gabriel nodded a bit in terms of the origins of it. So was it that, I, did I get that right in, in terms of actually medicine impacting on this exclusively? Was it, did you have a comment about there being a wider cause? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, things haven't really changed. I, I, and 
uh, going back to the sanitary revolution, all the changes that took place there, which extended life expectancy enormously, yes. uh, but they changed it mainly because they prevented um, a child mortality yes. rather than extending life. And uh, I, it's, so it remains, most estimates would, would suggest that medical interventions are responsible for about 20% of uh, improvement over um, the last number of decades in, in life expectancy, and all the rest comes from non-medical stuff. And we will, for many years, continue to see the uh, a phenomenal improvement we're seeing with cardiovascular disease and, and uh, lung cancer uh, in men um, because of declines in smoking, historic declines in smoking. The lag time here is enormous. But when you look ahead and you look at what's going wrong at the moment, um, liver disease, huge. Liam Donaldson warned of this in his first chief medical officer's annual report in 2001, huge. Um, uh, and the obesity epidemic and uh, uh, diabetes as a result of it. And all these, we will pay the cost for those. And those are not due to uh, medicine or anything to do with it. Those are to do so with I'm the way we order society. This is really interesting to me. And I, I, mean, I realize we're here to talk about communication, but the three of you have a set of facts in front of you which you're uh, you are attaching different beliefs to yes. now if we if we're not if we're not clear about what we're communicating it may not be a surprise that we're communicating uh, a confusion really uh, because there's an ambivalence in what we're communicating on the one hand the grandeur and I and when I say this, Ray, you know, I, I, I don't mean it ironically. There is a, there is, there are great achievements, uh, but similarly, we need to contextualise the value of those achievements and the limits of what they can achieve. And there may be a proportional difference between what Ina is describing in a GP practice and what you may be on a neurology ward. But the limits remain limits, don't they, of what's achievable? And how meaningfully are we communicating those limits? I mean, I totally agree with, I think we're all, I'm sure, at one, of the need to communicate the limits to what meds can offer. And certainly, uh, one had to remind oneself, and sometimes the rest of the world, you know, life is a disease with 100% mortality, and it, you know, it will inevitably end in tears. And that there is always going to, you can only postpone death, and you can postpone disability, but you can't postpone them indefinitely, and, and that sooner or later, you get into a situation where you are exactly the situation that uh, Iona is talking about, where basically you, as it were, torturing people into a slightly extended life. Uh, that's something I hope I didn't do too often, but nonetheless, uh, that is a potential consequence of not appreciating the limits of medicine. Well, Sean Elian, maybe, I mean, th this is so, talking specifically then about the Liverpool Care Pathway, so the example, I think mammography is another, although they reflect different, perhaps, ends of the spectrum, but with the, the Liverpool Care Pathway, which is a, a, I think, fair to say, a pathway of care or a set of guidelines about how best to manage patients who are entering the last few days of life. Now, how has, what, I guess, as medical director, you'll have seen all sorts of concerns about that in Gloucestershire over the last couple of months. What shape have those concerns taken and what, how are the trust communicating against those concerns? I think... It's an interesting point. I just to elaborate on Ray's point that life is actually a sexually transmitted terminal illness, isn't it? So it, there's a bit more to it than that. But um, which brings us full circle, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but the, in fact, I think the noise in the trust has been less than it might have been 
And I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that what people have been very critical of is not the Liverpool Care Pathway, it's the incorrect application right. of the principles behind the Liverpool Care Pathway. And I would not defend that for one minute. Failing to communicate with the patient or the family is indefensible. The principles behind the Liverpool <coughs> Care Pathway are elegant and correct, in my view. And actually, I think there was great credit, and that really comes back to a point I was making earlier, within the organisation, is that our palliative care consultants, palliative care nurses, and a number of others across our organisation engaged in an over-the-weekend debate to produce a reasoned argument and discussion and clarification that was distributed to every member of staff within the organisation and said, don't be frightened. What the Liverpool Care Pathway is not is the following, and what it actually is is the following. And I think that was a really good example of capturing the moment and using communication. And, and actually, we are talking about the public, but in fact, the staff are the public as well, aren't they? Our 8,000 staff use our services on a daily basis. So using that as a method of relaying the message is, I think, phenomenally powerful in itself. In commenting on there being a, a potential or realised failure of communication, I mean, this brings us back to the question where I guess we're meant to be debating, is it that presumably that wasn't explicitly because people weren't, staff weren't going up, I mean, it may have been this, it may have been this, but I'd be surprised if it was in entirety going up to patients and staff and explaining this is what's happening, this is what's going on. Presumably the failure of that communication in part was a hiatus of understanding of what of, of the patient context yeah and I, I exactly that and I, I would encourage anybody who's never done this before who is in a healthcare professional role to go and spend an hour in a department that isn't within that you're not known sitting in the waiting room listening to patients and their relatives discussing the conversation they've just had with the nurse or doctor because it reveals the breakdown in the understanding the two-way piece that says this is what I've told you. You now tell me what, how you've interpreted that. And um, I think that we fail to check that on too often. Now, I'm sure people weren't brutalizing patients by refusing to tell them, or there may have been some examples of that, but the majority weren't that. But we, we don't check the level of knowledge that the person we've just communicated with. We just assume we've used the words, we'll walk out of the room, they must understand what we said, because we're clever. <coughs> So this leads on, I guess, a bit to trust, and Gabriel and Ray, I think, invoke this, that there's, there's, a, there's a loss of, or at least the, pop, the popular received wisdom is that their trust is at an ebb, although earlier on Matthew was talking about how doctors still remain some of the most trusted members of society. Is trust, is trust more eroded than it was? Have you, is there a sense that we're less trustworthy or that the message isn't trusted or the institution of medicine's not trusted? And if not... Why not? I know Richard Horton certainly has written that actually that's a good thing if trust is in there because it forces us to greater accountability. Ray? I think the epidemiology of trust is actually quite a difficult thing to do. And, I mean, you can do simple inquiries. You know, do you trust your GP? Do, do, you, do, you, do you trust people treated in hospital? And the results continue to remain gratifyingly high. It's pretty level at 90% or whatever. Mm. When it comes to do you trust the doctor in this situation or that situation, or, as the point I think Matthew was making is, if you know, you're asked a very general question, like, do you trust the medical profession to be truthful on this, then you get a much more complicated picture. But I, I think you have to trust your doctor uh, at to some level, because you have to trust that she or he is well-informed, 
has your um, welfare at heart, and is going to work you know, to produce the result you want. If, if, if you don't have that trust at what, some level, then there's, uh, the whole interaction, it seems to me, is empty to the heart, and you're left with something pretty awful. So I don't think trust itself is a bad thing. Blind trust, of course, is a bad thing, and the doctor's exploiting trust is a bad thing, but trust itself must be intrinsically good. Yeah, yeah I, I, funnily enough, I looked up the results of that very question and the, and the 2011 Mori poll. I think the 2012 one will be interesting because it'll have taken place after the so-called strike, I would say. But doctors, uh, this was, would you, uh, would you tell me if you generally trust them to tell the truth or not? And doctors scored at the top 92%, and it was the last, the bottom three were journalists, 19%, government ministers, 17%, politicians generally, 14%. So I, I think doctors still have it. But, but the thing that worries me enormously is the marketization of services. Mm. And it is uh, the feeling that I... I, I, I kind of, because I had some health problems myself, and I kind of had this feeling talking to my own GP. I'm not sure why my GP is pushing me in that direction. And I think uh, that trust is being undermined as stories emerge about um, uh, GPs and clinical commissioning groups and their shareholdings in Virgin Healthcare or in other companies. And I think there's a real conflict of interest there that we're not coping with. And I came across this locally, actually. I was doing, I was doing a little... There was a very good report on ovarian cancer screening that uh, came out in um, the United States Task Force Prevention recently, and I decided, uh, which showed that it was ineffective and also it caused damage. Uh, so worse than uh, worse than being neutral, it was actually causing damage. And I found a website um, of a company uh, totally owned and run by GPs in the Greater Bristol area. And on that website, they provide some commercial services to the NHS, but they also provide ovarian cancer screening from four locations around Bristol, and they charge £70 a time for this. Now, how does that uh, you know, mesh with uh, evidence-based medicine or with uh, professional responsibility here? It doesn't. And I think the more we see the creeping commercialization, uh, the more we will see the loss of trust because patients won't know when the doctor is across the table from them. What they want to know is that that doctor has their interests and their interests alone at heart. So is your suggestion that if there's um, the potential anyway for remunerative gain, then it calls into question the clinician's intention and therefore distorts yeah. the trust? So in which case... How does private medicine flourish? Iona? Or does it flourish? Maybe it doesn't. Yeah, well, yeah. does it flourish? Yeah. That, that, yeah. I, 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 can I just course, follow on yes. from Gabriel? Yes. Because I think um, it, it, the experience of trying to offer immunisation to the parents of small children at the time of the MMR fiasco um, when, when parents knew that there was an, a target payment for it, suddenly the whole task becomes so much bigger. Um, and the, difficult, the different ethical frameworks for, this is one, Dave Sackett's argument, for, for preventive as opposed to curative interventions. With preventive interventions, the, the, the conflict of interest is even more sinister, it seems to me, because it, if you are ill and you go to a doctor, the sort of implicit contract is the doctor will try to help and they will do the best they can. Um, and that's, that's fairly ethically straightforward. 
In preventive healthcare, the, the doctors, the health service is reaching out to you who are perfectly happily going about your business and saying, we can make your prospects better. Now, if that process actually causes harm and you're paid to offer it, now that is, that is the end of trust. Hmm. And the private medicine? The, pr the private medicine, I, I think it's, it's not quite the same because in a way the private medicine as it operates in this country, I, I, I wouldn't make the same argument in the States, right. is that it tends to be um, on, a, on a more... Um, it's not at system level, it's yeah. more on... Uh, and so you, you do have somebody who is paying a, an individual to provide the sort of care that they want. So, in a way, that's, that small contract between patient and doctor is OK. Is, mm. But as soon as it becomes system and there are companies and there are shareholders and there are, um, in, uh, and there are incentives to people to... Yeah, I'm, not I'm, I'm happy to park it, but I'm not convinced, actually, that conceptually they differ wildly in that um, if, if we're calling into question the, the, the trust between a doctor and patient because of uh, wondering about their intention based on remuneration, then, in fact, yeah, that should I be just as... I would draw it, uh, absolutely. I remember, that because it's, uh, Julia Tudor Hart argues that in, in any private system, the rate of operations goes right up mm. because people get remission. I withdraw it. I withdraw yeah. it. Absolutely. I mean, if we are, I mean, no we've, we've missed the justice. Uh, we've missed the justice boat on this. But really, you know, it, what are? Well, I guess it comes into what we are communicating because we can communicate things verbally. We can communicate things through our through our attitudes and approaches. And we'll come on, I guess, to professionalism. But you know, what are we communicating? If, if, we're, if we're trying to champion justice in a society that permits, endorses private health care, you know, is that something that really should be tenable in the 21st century if we're aiming for a... Sean Elian, comment on that? Well, in um, the trust? It, can we, how, do we, how do we encourage that in a, in a trust? I think we've got to... I mean, I think there's an element of this that some of it's very conscious and, and people may be driven and find themselves delivering... Um, a component of care because they have a gain themselves and financial gain is probably the most uncomfortable one but Ray chaired a really interesting session at the science festival this year on consent and a member of the public put their hand up and said if somebody is receiving care outside the NHS should the doctor during the consent process declare an interest if they have a financial interest in in that operation match I think is a really interesting question and interestingly the public are much more aware of this than I thought they might be but I think there are other interests as well. So the, the case I quoted earlier, if, if I'd got to a more suitable conclusion for that patient that um, she decided not to have active treatment and died in four weeks, when my mortality from treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is quoted in the Daily Telegraph in 10 years' time and it's worse than everybody else's, I run the risk of being vilified. Yeah. I might have come to the right conclusion for the patient but I've come to the wrong conclusion for me as a professional in terms of how, how I'm being measured. So there may be all sorts of hidden motivations behind this that mean communication is more difficult than you might think. Yeah, yeah I, I really think there's a whole set of traits, yes. isn't it, that people are making all the time, doctors are making all the time, but patients as well, <laughs> private practice. You're trading 
accessibility and uh, confidence that you'll see the same person yes. repeatedly. And yes, I, I think uh, uh, people probably do have a suspicion about uh, uh, over-treatment, over-investigation. But this comes back, comes back to one of the points I was making. You know, I, we really need an educated population that is able to engage in this whole process as, uh, as an equal, because at the moment they're not engaged in it as an equals, and, and we need to do everything we can to en encourage that equality. Richard Holloway yesterday was talking about um, you know the, the discrepancy between as, as a, you know as a man of faith discrepancy between knowledge of scriptures and, and acts of goodness so to speak so if we look at uh, for example again medicine perhaps particularly as a profession you've talked about our separateness from a civic um, responsibility and uh, all the time I imagine in the trust doctors will uh, Call, in, call upon their professionalism and say, you know, well, you know, you can't do this because of my this is my professional. Uh, you're infringing on my professional freedom, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Are we What are we communicating to the public in in our ostensible acts of professionalism? Because I'm not sure we're entirely clear what we're talking about when we're saying, right, this is doctors as a profession. For example, and again, you know, we're bringing this to doctors. Does that make sense? In what I'm, what I'm saying at all yeah are we are we are we communicating the right version of professionalism through our engagement with society or in fact are we perpetuating a myth of a uh, of an unassailable um pinstripe suited bunch ray i mean it seems to be there's many strands of professionalism and competence is one thing patients want they want you to be able to trust it you, you yes. know you're not going to botch it or get the diagnosis wrong and so on there is then communicating that you care uh, and then there's the broader communication of somebody who does care about social issues, yes. who, who actually would become a leader in the debates that impact on all the things we are being concerned about, such as inequalities and all the causes of ill health. And I think we've lost that third dimension, and it's interesting to examine why. Uh, I think there are quite a lot of reasons why. But so, so it is quite a lot of... Uh, well, your examples give a good example recently of... Um I don't know if it was specifically around uh, your assisted dying and your engagement with the BMA in terms of almost a, a, a level of surprise at your appearance in trying to engage on this professionally and inform policy. Yeah, I mean, whatever view one has about this issue, yes. but it seems to me I was rather surprised. It was my first appearance ever going to BMA, and I felt I'd lost my virginity in the summer, actually. Uh, um, a bit late in life to do so, but it was an extraordinarily bureaucratic procedural organization. And I can see now why they never spoke with any coherent or impressive voice on the biggest challenge to healthcare. Claire and RCGP, quite different. But they were lone voices. They were not supported by the other colleges. And so the professional voice isn't amplified by our so-called representatives, with the exception of, of Iona's College. So I think that's another area where we have lost our professional presence as people who communicate very important messages and who can be trusted. Yeah. And also, we have colluded in allowing ourselves to be placed into a remuneration structure exactly. that rivets, uh, that, that just 
the whole thing is, 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 is punctured through with conflict of interest. Can you expand on that a bit? Well, just one tiny example. I had, I, when I, I wrote something in the BMJ, and I had a letter from a retired GP. I, I have quite a fan club among the very ancient, which is nice. Um, <laughs> it's very nice. Um, and, but she, she was writing to me about her 94-year-old husband who had received a letter from his practice, and I'm sure it must have been in late March, um, asking him to come for a cholesterol test. And she just wrote in this letter, in whose interests is this request being made? And it just, that's just a tiny example of things we are doing all the time. And the, and the medical students who are placed in practices in March, when we are all scrabbling for those dreadful points, um, it, it, it's demeaning, it's, it's, it undermines the whole professional approach, and we have to go back to a, a remuneration system that is not about, which is about providing a, ho a whole coherent service, not about getting points for little bits of it. And, li and little bits of it for which there's no evidence. You know, the whole, I, I think the whole health checks programme is based on really shaky grounds, and the regional directors of public health were very sceptical about its introduction, and it is being done on political grounds, as far as I'm concerned. It's uh, so that everyone can say, oh, look, every, every person in the country of a certain age can go and have a check-up from their GP, irrespective of whether the evidence base is there to support it or not. So I, and I, I mean, it is really interesting the way... I, I'd, uh, I've, it just came back to me, I was in Dublin a fortnight ago uh, on the day that the news broke about that uh, a poor Indian dentist who died in a Galway um, um, but, uh, because she was denied uh, a termination of her, her pregnancy. And a really interesting debate where the medical profession had placed itself at the centre of this decision-making, not the, not, the, not the women of Ireland making these decisions or anyone else, but the medical profession was absolutely, absolutely prime there. And I had a very heated conversation, I was in the Department of Health, a very heated conversation and, uh, about what the doctors should or should not do. And as far as I was concerned, the doctor had a professional duty and an ethical duty to act. And they said, oh, well, the law's unclear. And I said, well, that doesn't uh, take away from your professional and ethical duty to, 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 to act. Even if you break the law, even if you end up going to jail, you've got a professional and ethical duty to act. And I, th I think, um, you know, Ray got closest to it. I think over the last number of years, we have been boxed in as a profession by contractual issues by contractual negotiations by new contracts and a whole set of new arrangements for general practice and all of that has boxed us boxed us in constraint 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 and you can and then we've um, the other problem that came up today about the democratic organs of the of uh, of the profession and how they are constrained by their their history and their operation and are not fit for purpose for today so at both ends of the spec both both collectively as a profession and individually in our work we've been boxed in and constrained and we need to find a way to get out of that and Gabriel is that so I hope this is a fair question to ask you. Is your leaving the Department of Health, what does what ought that to communicate in terms of how, in fact, we can impact on things? Because much of the last session was about empowerment and acting. Should that fill us with despair or hope, in fact, that the system is changeable? 
Well, I've enjoyed it enormously. <laughs> what, the leaving? Well, I, leaving, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, I'd reached the end. I, I couldn't go on. You know, you, you reach the end at a certain point, and I could not go on taking a very good salary for helping this government implement these set of, this set of right. health reforms. I just couldn't do it. Right? Now, there is, there is a real question about what we should be doing, and, and not everyone's in that privileged position to be able to walk out like that, and, and, uh, and, and we need to work out uh, a set of things that everyone can do in whatever position they find themselves in. And part of that, I mean, my goal is to try as best I can over the next couple of years that going into the next election that we have uh, on as many political parties as we can manage it in their manifesto, um, uh, commitments to improve health and to uh, restore the NHS. So that is my job and that's what I'm going to uh, spend my time doing. And we all need to find our different ways to contribute. But one thing is sure, we cannot, as a profession, I think, sit behind a desk and just see the individual patient and just do the best thing for the individual patient. Absolutely, that's the right thing to do, but it's not sufficient. It's not, it's not all that we need to be doing. Yes.